Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Mark Stokes. Welcome. Thank you very much, Amy. I really appreciate you inviting me on your great podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm very excited. So share with us what it is you do. Yeah, well, I've I've done many and varied things uh, over the years, but what I currently do, uh, I'm a property developer. Uh, We do generally large-scale developments in the 5 to 20 million GDV range. Uh, I run a, an educational business which focuses on uh, business and property development. I'm a mentor. Uh, I, I'm on the board of a social impact business which takes commercial property and supports uh, the alleviation of homelessness. As well as a property investor, I'm a business investor and I am also co-founder of SAS Alliance. And as you say, I'm sure we'll come on to that subject as well. So. Yeah, I've, I've got a, a lot on at the moment. Uh, I'm also uh, an author. I'm just about to launch my uh, fourth book, which is the first one I'll be co-authoring. And I'm halfway through my fifth book as well. So that's a bit of a 35-year itch I wanted to scratch and uh, making the most of it now. So of all those roles, which ones do you really enjoy? I actually enjoy, I enjoy them all in, in different ways. Um, I think uh, it's easy if you say it quickly. Um, And each one really draws out a different type of skill set. I'm pretty calm under pressure, always have been over the years. Um, And each one throws up a different type of discipline, a different type of soul searching. I've always been a very big believer in the power of the body and the power of the mind working together, pushing myself outside of my comfort zone. And that goes back to some pretty traumatic times in, in my past and you know, really not wanting to leave anything on the table in life, to be honest, living life to full and uh, you know, exploring the, the depth of my reserve tank. So I actually enjoy what each one brings to the table. And hopefully I'm, I'm greater than the sum of the parts as a, as a consequence of that. So you mentioned there the power of the body and the mind coming together. Why is that important for you to do that? When I, I, I've been involved in ultramarathon running and and ultra endurance sports for for a long time now, less so now. My my joints uh, don't really take it quite so much, but uh, I've done some some pretty extreme events, running over 100 miles in 24 hours, running across the, the desert with the Marathon de Saab. And, and many um, uh, many Ironman events and uh, an ultra uh, mountain trail running events. So I really appreciate, you know, when you've been running for 16, 18, 20 hours and it's the middle of the night, you're, you're low on water and your entire body just wants to curl up under a hedge and go to sleep, there's something that your mind can really draw on. Um, and that, that power of your, 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 um, your spirit, um, your mental well-being, uh, your your body, bringing all that together. There's actually nothing you can't achieve. You know, the, there is no place for limiting beliefs there. As long as you can separate the two types of pain, 
you know, the inconvenient, uh, uncomfortable pains, you know, the blisters, the toenails falling off and things. Um, if you can combine the, the weight and strength of your, your body and the mind, it's simply amazing what can be achieved. And for me, the story goes back many, many years before that. In fact, um, as a very shy, uh, very conservative uh, young man, I was in my first year at, at uh, university. Uh, I went to my, my first football match, which, which turns out to be the Hillsborough disaster. And when you, when you see something so traumatic, um, when you see children take their, draw their last breath, and you know, 36 of those children, or 36 of the 96 that passed away on that day, uh, they were under the age of 18. You know, the youngest one was 10. Um, and that really does leave something that you can never truly share with anybody and probably nor should you. They're, they're, they're left for, for moments of my, my inner self and reflection. But I, I vowed to myself, you know, that, that day and the days after, because I couldn't comprehend what had, what had really happened. It's very difficult to process. So it almost went in memory plus in the back of my mind and, and there was no sort of PTSD or counselling really available way back then. So I just made a vow to myself that um, the best way I could, could honour those who, who couldn't live a, a life fulfilled any longer um, was to just just give life everything, explore everything. And, you know, I've been to the bottom of the oceans, I've been to the top of the mountains, I've skydived, I've led businesses, led people, had so many privileges in life. And there are still so many more things that I want to achieve. So for me, it's a, a very complex equation where my life has always been about change, radical change, uh, evolutionary change, uh, and remaining calm and being able to draw the positives out of every every situation where I can. So quite a complex answer to a, a very simple question, but hopefully that gives you a bit of a feeling of, of the makeup of, of my DNA, how my life has taken a few twists and turns, and, and what makes me determined to, to achieve what I do. I think there's one, one philosophy there where it doesn't matter what I set out to achieve, it's, it's already achieved. If I set a goal, it's done. I've just got to work out the mechanics. I suppose a good example is I signed up for my first Ironman many years ago now, probably about 13 years ago. And the first thing I did in the first two weeks was I went and swam 2.4 miles. I went and cycled 112 miles. And I then went and stumbled, crawled and ran a marathon. And I needed to do those three individually very quickly. Didn't take any training. I just kind of did it, grounded out, and it was pretty grim. But then the whole process of my training was not building up to achieving it. I knew I could achieve it. It was about now how do I fine-tune and process and, and become more accomplished at each one of those three disciplines and bring them together. So do you think that if you hadn't have been to that football match that you would have had the the drive and the uh, the inclination to achieve so much more in life? I, I can't really say. And I, I tend not to look backwards in life too much. Um, so, I, no, I, I really couldn't give an honest answer to that. All I can say is it, it left a, you know, it seared a brand on my soul that um, has stayed with me for, you know, 30-odd years uh, since that that awful day. 
and I, you know, you, you don't forget those sort of things that that, that happen. You 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 can't. Um, and I'm quite a quite a quiet, reserved person. I, I guess people only know about me what I choose that them to know about me, if you like. And I didn't tell a soul apart from very very close family members up until the year I left um, corporate life. So you know, I was 45 in 2015. And I hadn't told anybody really. Maybe six or seven people knew knew what I'd seen that day. And I guess what I found with corporate life is it it, it was almost through a cling film around me, and and I couldn't truly breathe. And I've seen that a lot over the years. And I was fortunate to be quite resilient and strong, and I could put my own character and passion on my corporate role and and did and I was I was very successful at that but even though I was very confident ran big teams I'd be running a team of a thousand or more very successfully it was only when I left corporate life that I realized how much more there was to life how much more I had to give and how much more my my soul could breathe I, I, I guess um, so that was a, a huge transformation for me and I guess one of the one of the big testaments to that is is my book writing. You know, ever since I've held a paperback book in you know eight, nine, ten years old, I'd always harbored that ambition of, of creating a book, of, of writing a book, and I've described it as my thirty-five year itch I wanted to scratch because it really did take that long to have the confidence to decide. Well, I am going to write a book and pick a subject and go through the process. And once I did, I just really enjoyed cultivating that that style, that process. And my books tend to be, they're not high level. They, they tend to be in a reasonable amount of detail. So people can really get stuck into the detail, you know, really get the fingernails into a, into a subject. Because the type of you know, business investing and property development we do on large scale, um, it tends to be, you know, the devil's in the detail. But equally, it's got to have the right mindset to adjust to taking on those huge, uh, huge concepts. Um, so the, the book writing for me, um, you know, by the end of the year, I'll have released five books. And I just really enjoy that process. You know, very cathartic. And you talk about radical and evolutionary change, and you've been through quite a lot of transformations yourself, as you say, moving through the different areas that you're working in business. Tell us what you were doing specifically before you left the corporate world at 45. Yeah, so I, when I came out of uh, university, I was employed. I've only ever had two employers in my life, probably with about 40 or 50 roles in both those organisations. Uh, but when I, I was an engineer, just graduated, got my first class honours degree, came out of university or polytechnic as it was then. And I was employed by uh, as the first employee of an American organisation, um, a large joint venture organisation between uh, McCourt Kiwit International. Um, so McCourt's were, uh, were you probably familiar with the billionaire, David? Yeah, McCourt? David, yeah. Um, so David was my, my first boss. Um, back in 1992 um, so I guess he was my first flirtation with mentorship um, you know incredibly powerful I worked with him in in uh, Chicago uh, and in London um, and the joint venture between him and also Peter Kiewit and Sons Peter Kiewit and Sons are um, a very substantial engineering company in in the US 
they're based out of Omaha, Nebraska. And in fact, they have a, a very famous resident in their head office, which is called uh, Kiwit Plaza, uh, which is the home of uh, Berkshire Hathaway. So um, quite often we'd see uh, Mr. Buffett there. Um, and I had the pleasure in 1993 of, of actually having, having dinner with, uh, with Warren Buffett, just three of us. Well, what a privilege that was. Shame I really didn't appreciate at the time exactly who he was, but there we go. Yeah, I was running large infrastructure projects and these were unproven infrastructure projects. This would be where you had to go through regulatory change, where we would be structuring potentially, um, you know, putting people on planes very quickly, going to far off countries, could be the Philippines, could be Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, putting fiber optic networks in the ground, planning large blanket overlays, putting uh, power stations, um, data centers, uh, all, all around the world, you know, hundreds of millions. And the very significant difference here would be, this would be a competitional first mover advantage. So cost was quite often less of an issue. Cash was quite often, you know, even less of an issue at the start. It was about getting the infrastructure in place so you could actually be the first to take services to, uh, to large, uh, large telcos and large um, financial institutions. You know, when you're dealing with the, uh, the, the Morgan Stanleys, the JP Morgans, the, the Goldman Sachs, you know they're they're pretty pretty serious uh, client base, and they'll accept. Um, well, they want highly resilient infrastructure. So, with power stations and data centres, the lights simply cannot go off. I mean, you can never design a, a system that is 100% resilient, but you can get to 99.999%. But nobody will ever accept the 0.001% at time that the lights might go out. And that would be. Uh, myself and my team's job to design self-healing networks that would um, provide as much resilience as was feasibly possible. And what a great mentor to be working under. And, and uh, with David McCourt, his motto is always forward. And as you said earlier, you, know, you don't look back, you're always looking forward. So I'm not surprised. Well, he's a very, very big disruptor. Um, he reminded me in, in, in many respects of, of uh, Richard Branson in terms of taking an existing model and really attacking it. And, and he did, he did it in a, a real style with real passion. And it was a real privilege to work with him and such a high quality team that he he drew together and and the might of, of Kiwit as well as McCourt. And uh, they took me to the US for almost a year um, and put a, a, solid, a solid year of investment in. But if anybody's worked with an, a large US uh, organization, you know, they want their pound of flesh and they're um, perfectly prepared to chuck you in at the deep end um, without life raft as well. So it came with a lot of responsibility. So from being a you know, fairly, uh, fairly young, conservative young man, following my experiences uh, that I mentioned earlier on, which uh, did take a fundamental change in, in life, I was then presented with just an amazing opportunity to take um, to take my business career in whatever direction at whatever speed, and I decided very early on that I would I would volunteer for everything, and I did. The phrase from the the film Dirty Harry: Why do they call you Dirty Harry? Well, any dirty job Harry gets it. Um, well, I would put my hand up for anything. So. And I'm talking if there was a 20 million pound project that was um, going a bit awry, 
and we needed somebody to go in there and turn it around, that's what I would do. I'd put my hand up. Um, so I'd be parachuted in into any type of corporate war zone, as well as having my day-to-day -day responsibilities. So I had to become very resilient, have a highly structured system, a great team, a great team that I think the reason why we had such a loyal team there was everybody recognized they would get opportunity. Uh, it wasn't a glass ceiling where, you know, if, if, if I can train them to do what I do, then, you know, they'll be able to take over my role. That's exactly what it was. You know, I wanted them to take over my role. I could then move on to the next stage. So hence, I probably had 40 or 50 roles um, running various countries, various structures, various acquisitions, got involved a lot in M&A, uh, a lot of turnaround work, integration work once M&A had been done. And, uh, you know, that old adage, every scar has a value. You, it doesn't matter whether you created the problem, whether you're solving the problem or whether you're, you know, accelerating at a, at a heady growth rate. Uh, every type of experience leaves 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 an imprint on you, and and I just absolutely savoured that. But there came a point in my in my life where, you know, when you're on the board of seven different companies, all doing various things. I've been a non-exec director come 2015 for about seven years as well. That you need to start looking, and probably it should have happened earlier, if I'm honest. But I needed to start looking at where my life was was actually going. You know, I'd invested in businesses then. I'd led businesses. I'd uh, uh, successfully sold my shares uh, on a very successful venture back to a UK PLC. And by the time I was in my early to mid forties, I guess a, a little bit belatedly, I started to realise, well, you know, all this success was great, but, you know, I was uh, missing the best years of my four children's lives. Um, and I'm, you know, not too proud to say that, you know, I, I, I reached that conclusion a, a little bit too late, but not, not, uh, not irreversibly. And so I decided that I was going to leave corporate life. I decided I would leave it on my own terms, um, but also I'd leave as a good leaver. Uh, so when I sat down with my chief executive at that time, uh, we we formed a, a, a structure. The PLC wanted to exit certain markets. And they wanted to bring on another acquisition. So there was another six to nine months of turnaround work that they'd like me to do. And then for the second time in my career, because it happened in a very similar way in the first business, um, I was left to close down portions of, of companies, do the jobs nobody really wants to do, and then uh, turn the lights out on my way out. And that's exactly what I did. It took me uh, seven to nine months, long time. But in 2015, discharged myself royally from uh, corporate life and into, into my entrepreneurship world now. I'm hearing quite a few sort of army metaphors here, sort of being when you said parachuting into corporate war zone and discharging yourself. Is, is there a particular reason for that? Oh, I don't know. You know, nobody's ever said that. I, I used to be in the territorial army in the in the 90s. Um, and that was interesting for me uh, because one thing I wasn't taxing myself on apart from just the sheer hours I would work in terms of catching the red eye to Paris and probably hitting three, four, five other countries before I came back on a Friday Friday night. I wasn't taxing myself uh, physically. 
So mentally, I mean, I was just wired uh, every minute of every day back in the 90s. But So I joined the, the TA, actually, and um, uh, my, my best man at the time, um, he was in uh, he was in 2-3 SAS, and so I was in the TA. He was in the uh, uh, Special Forces, and, and our house just looked like a, probably looked like a battle zone, to be honest, at, at weekends, you know, coming back with... Um, kit dripping wet um, but I just loved the the physical exertion of that and that whilst I didn't do uh, my advanced paddy and and become a, a free fall skydiver in in the forces um, I think it was always taking that you know living life to the full you know if um, if I wanted to do half a marathon I'd run a marathon if I wanted to run a marathon I'd run 100 miles you know just taking it to the to the next level and I really enjoyed seeing what the, the bottom of my reserve tank was. Um, and there's a lot of positives I, I gained out of the, the discipline of being in the military. We, I've, I've employed a lot of people who have been ex-forces, ex um, particularly special forces. The type of discipline that the, uh, the armed forces gave our business was quite incredible and I have a huge amount of respect for the men and women of our armed forces when you're when you want somebody to to be a corporate pathfinder somebody who's got the initiative wherewithal intelligence and acumen and self-discipline to to hop on a plane with a very brief business plan and go and st start to structure relationships and the, and a business plan in country doing something somebody has never done before. You need a certain level of trust, uh, somebody who understands communication, who is rigid in process, but flexible in approach. And I found that incredible. So, so I would say, uh, you know, any militaryisms that have come, have come from partly my experience, but also just that intense and sheer privilege of, of working as part of a team and leading a team of such incredibly talented people over the years. So leaving in 2015, how easy was the transition? So I recognised as I was exiting corporate life, there were a number of different trajectories I could follow. Uh, for many, jumping out of the corporate jet without a parachute, you know, that's something that, uh, um, that I would always advise against. But because I was so busy for that six, seven, eight, nine months leading up to my exit, I had little time to, to prepare. I've never really suffered from procrastination, but I'm also very big on due diligence as well. So it's weighing up the time that you spend in, with due diligence, but also just getting on with, with business, making a decision and going with it. I found that the repurposing of, of the skill sets that I had was, was incredibly important, but I probably overlooked initially, um, not for long, for a, a few weeks, um, the recognition of the skill sets that I'd actually accrued over all those years of sorting mess out and creating very successful businesses. And I think that's a stage that many people, and um, they do leave behind. They can leave behind a whole wealth of skills that they might think isn't appropriate. And I see that particularly in, uh, in property investment. A lot of people miss out those skills of running a business that they've already got and are almost chasing the ace, trying to find this new secret source. But actually, it's the resolute skills and, and mindset that they've accrued over the years, which is the incredible 
substance that they're they're looking for that can really you know make their their car go faster so to speak um so it's that blend for me of identifying what you really love identifying the skills that you've got identifying the gaps in the the armory you've got wrapping yourself around some absolutely fantastic people who you really enjoy the company of and incidentally, I've, I've worked a lot on joint ventures in the past, so I've got a few tales to tell on, on joint ventures that have not gone so well. And generally, I've been the one that's had to pull a team together to, to address those. But So I'm, I'm not one of those people who will um, see joint ventures as, as linking pinkies and walking into the sunset. You know, Quite often, the, they're misappropriated, poorly planned, uh, in, in my experience. So there's a, a business discipline and a, a business skill set required um, to structure those uh, correctly. So I would implore anybody who's looking for, for you know, that passage out of corporate life to really spend more time than I did just evaluating the type of skills that they've already got and which ones they love, how they can execute and understanding a business plan that they can move forward on. That, I think that would pay them a, a handsome return. Now, you've already hinted that there was a reason why you left the corporate world in 2015. Was it your why that made you leave? Yeah, I think uh, it had always been centred around my, my children. I, I have four children. They were they were quite young at, at that time. Two were, you know, in the five to seven and, and the other two were in their early teens at the time. Um, I'd missed some some pretty important times in their their younger years, um, which I will never get back, to be honest. Um, and I realised that, that that would continue the more companies I became a, a board member of and the more successful I was in corporate life. So I had to check that, check my stride and understand, well, what are you actually trying to achieve? You know, where, where is the, uh, what does great look like to me in, in six months' time, a year's time, five years' time, 10 years' And so that was quite a bit of soul searching there. Um, I want my children to have a, a life fulfilled. Uh, I want them to, you know, to live their passion. And I also, I, I don't want them to be sat in a solicitor's office opening my will and seeing what their legacy looks like. I want them to actually, you know, live that legacy and become the custodians of that legacy in my lifetime. I want to be able to to enjoy seeing them rise to the challenge and and actually becoming better than I ever was or I ever could be and taking taking my legacy, which will be their legacy, onto to their next generation. So I, I want to be part of that. And I, I know people who have who have gone to the grave um, not having the joy of seeing their children and working with their children to uh, to to help shape um you know building a, a business or building a, a passion that they desire but i also recognize that you know as parents um i'm not sure i bought the copy of the uh, the parenting manual you know it's difficult for all of us but children children are born creative uh, sir ken robinson's done a, a great ted talk um on creativity but then society tends to beat creativity out of people. And actually, that creativity should, should flourish. So what I do with my children is remove the traditional boundaries from them and enable them to think differently. 
Um, all four of them have been shareholders in, in our company since the very early, early years of its foundation. Now, that's not because I want them to understand shareholding at their, their very tender age at the moment. But by the time they're 18, I want them to know more about being a shareholder than I did when I was 18. And I think that will be an incredibly powerful uh, way of, of them growing up to, into an adult world in a responsible way. Um, but also enabling them to to understand that the life of choices isn't uh, isn't just in a traditional sense. You know, there can be something different. However, if they would like to go and do different things and uh, and not mirror or, or decide to to take our, our our legacy forward, then that's fine by me as well. You know, I want them to to really be happy. So I'm hearing a few words and I want to see how they they sort of sit with you. You've mentioned discipline a lot. That's been a really key word for you and passion. How do they combine? I think they combine combine if you know where you're going. If you know what, what you're about, if you know your own DNA, if you understand what direction you want to go um, and living a life fulfilled, then that will invoke every every discipline, every moral fiber in your body um, to, to be hardwired and tuned to achieving that outcome, not at the expense of other people, but in conjunction with other people. And I think that's incredibly powerful. So, so I think discipline has to be has to be used um, used carefully because you it, it can be um, it can create a, a, a disharmony or a disrespect uh, amongst others. I, um, I guess one of my strap lines is creating shared value. I want to create shared value, um, not at the expense of others. I've seen the construction industry around the world in so many countries work on the basis where if I want more profit, you're going to take less. But as a property developer, as an example, where the catalyst of creating shared value and if we can acquire something if we can create some added value then everybody wins you know the the, the designer gets a contract the um, health and safety team get a contract the main contractor gets a contract society uh, benefits from repurposing of a, a, an aging building so creating shared value is is incredibly important to me and it under underscores every single business that, that we have and you mentioned earlier, right at the beginning, about the social impact business, businesses that you're involved in. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, so again, that's underpinned by creating and enabling shared value. So uh, Cornerstone Place, um, we look to take commercial property, transform commercial property, put some long-term leases on to support charitable institutions um, who are best placed to provide the care um, for um, repatriating homelessness. Uh, and resolving homelessness in society. It's a deep ingrained problem, but it isn't just limited to homelessness. There, there are so many other um, equally um, you know, requiring needy parts of society. And from time to time, we, we all need a, a step up. We all need a helping hand. And it's wonderful to be able to do that. Now, we're not a charity. And I think that's a classic case where you can create so much positivity, so much social impact and creating shared value, while still bringing in investors, bringing in banks, creating that shared economic value. 
um, but leaving a, a sweet taste for everybody to repeat that process and create those wheels of compounding to create something that does become a truly multi-generational force for good. So you mentioned right at the beginning that you, when you were leaving the corporate, you felt like you, you couldn't breathe properly, that you had this fill, cling film around you. How do you feel now? Uh, I guess I'm wearing Gore-Tex, I'm breathable. <laughs> um, look, I, I really put my own personal hallmark on every role I had in corporate life. But I think it was it was only after I left that I realised there was so much more to life. You know, the amount of time I spent walking the, the, the corporate line, doing things that really I didn't want to do, they didn't add any value to my family. You will do anything to rise up the corporate ladder, as long as it's morally, you know, ethical. But if you understand what your why is, and your why, let's say in my case, is my family, and that is crystal clear, then it doesn't half add a different, uh, a different vein of thought um, to your purpose on uh, on your day to day tasks. And for me, um, that all changed not on the day I left corporate life, but around about eight or nine months before. The day I sat down with my chief exec and said, like, this, this is where my, my life's going. Now, from that point on, and we agreed very harmoniously, um, but from that point on, the company worked for me. They were funding my exit plan. I gave them more hours than ever I had during that next six to eight months. Nobody was shortchanged in that process. But that mindset shift, there was, something clicked, some gears started clicking in and uh, and I was now you know pursuing my my next dream if you like my my next uh, my next life outside of corporate life and uh, literally overnight the company were working for me and not the other way around. So it's interesting you say that because I can't imagine that anybody doesn't have their why as being their family not being their family you know everybody wants to provide and have an incredible life and have those moments and experiences with their family so why is it that it has to get to a certain point in our lives that that suddenly that switch flicks I think that's a very good question Amy um for me that came as a realization over over many years um seeing my young family grow up and and really wincing at the at the stages of their childhood that I was missing I guess for many, and, and I've met a lot of people since, um, for many people, it may be they've reached that point where as they've grown in corporate life, their cost base in their social life has increased. More expensive cars, more expensive suits, more expensive mortgage on the house. And they get on a treadmill that are actually living a life they can't afford. And, you know, they're, they're that one or two or three paychecks away from some, some serious uh, drama. And the only way they can give themselves breathing space is not to get a second job, but is actually to, 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 to almost ruthlessly pursue the, the next, uh, next promotion. And hey, guess what? That next promotion is a good few more hours and probably you know, more time away from, from the family. So it's a, it's a pretty ruthless treadmill. Um, it's one where you know, the weak don't survive and you know, the strong... Uh, in you know, as much uh, I came from the construction and, uh, and infrastructure sector uh, into telecoms and power stations, and it was uh, you know, quite a 
quite a testosterone-led environment. And uh, yeah, shall we say it wasn't one where people tended to speak openly about challenges or, or problems that they had. Now, I think a lot has changed over those years. I'm going back 25, 30 years now to some of those practices. But, uh, you know, they, they still stay with me. And uh, I think we're in a lot better place now as society for it. And one of the things that you work with is the SAS Alliance. Tell us more about what SAS has done for you. Yeah, so one of the one of the challenges I set myself when I was leading corporate life was I wanted to be in control of my whole personal economy, everything. I simply wanted 100% resilience in my life. And whether I'll actually achieve that, I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's the, the quest. So taking control, one of the big areas at the age of 45 for me was it was starting to dawn, I guess one could say, that my pensions were um, were only about a decade away. But I wanted to take control of them now. Now, I'd been a, a loyal corporate servant. I'd put in pensions, uh, pension contributions every year um, throughout my life. So I had to work pretty hard to find out what I was going to do. Um, I researched quickly. I don't procrastinate, as I said. We did a lot of due diligence in a short period of time. Came up with SAS. I'd spent 25 years in the SAS wilderness. You know, you could have had a SAS pension, small self-administered pension in as early as 1973. I know a few people now have got family SAS pensions in their 70s. Um, so I was a, a late to the party, really, 2015, 2016. That enabled us to create our own SAS pension, our investment fund. It gave us that freedom of choice to decide what we wanted to do. Now, it comes with a, an incredible amount of responsibility as well. So it most certainly is not for everybody. I did a lot of due diligence in order to set up our SAS. And given that at that time, I'd, I was just about to release uh, my first book, the Commercial to Residential Conversion book, I decided that uh, SAS pensions would be a great subject for uh, my second book. And I can't even, can't even begin to believe I've even said those words. You know, I've never thought even five years ago that I would uh, choose to write a book on on pensions. I'm not qualified to do so, but, uh, you know, I put a, a lot of due diligence into it. So we wrote the book, uh, or I wrote the book on SAS pensions. And then given what we do and given what we've done with our pensions in a, a short period of time, and, and to give you an idea, uh, we acquired uh, one group of commercial property. And in that time, in the 25 years before, We'd created, through all of our contributions and our returns, created a certain size uh, pension pot. In the following 12 months, we doubled that pot. And that's what just one deal had, had done for us. Now, we were pretty skilled at being able to do that over you know, a 30-year corporate career and, and what happened subsequently. So, again, I say that with a certain degree of caution. But I just enjoyed that freedom of just being in control. And I also recognised that I was, uh, you know, spent many years working with highly talented people and standing on the shoulders of, of giants, um, you know, leading large, very skilled teams. So I, I created SAS Alliance uh, way back in 2017, I think it was, where I recognised that creating a group of people who come from all walks of life, all disciplines, 
who have a passion similar to mine, creating that freedom of choice that they might be interested in, in sharing what I'd learned and likewise, and we can all grow together, creating shared value to a place where, um, you know, we're only competing with what we're capable of, not competing with each other. The world's big enough. And in fact, maybe we could add in something more, uh, more important, and that's um, collaboration, collaboration of ideas, um, maybe even further into investments. So we, we created that. We created a, a very powerful Facebook group, um, SAS Alliance, um, and we've now got many thousands of people there who many have chosen that through the right due diligence, um, they've decided that a SAS is right for them as well. So it just creates that wonderful, wonderful group where there is a smorgasbord of, of experience in business and life. I can't think of any sector that isn't touched in the business world, any experience in life that isn't, isn't experienced across the group. And that creates an enormously eclectic array of skills. Um, it's not all about one, one particular discipline, although many people do share a passion for, uh, for property investing and developing. Uh, it, it's wider than that. And that's, that's been a, a real joy. And some of my most privileged moments are, are with you know, many of our group members who just have so much experience and wisdom. Many are in their late 30s, 40s, 50s, and therefore... Have, may well have, have children or families or aspiring to have families and therefore can connect with the legacy and the custodianship part. So we've all got our own reasons and, and each of our, our reasons are, are personal and unique to, to each and every one of us. But it's been a real privilege and it's great to see people continue to do great, great things with, with their own SAS. And that leads you into one of your new books. Yes, yeah. So uh, Louise Wright and uh, myself, we've we've been busy. Louise has, has been doing God's own work, um, doing a lot of the research. Um, so we've created a, a wonderful book, which is going to be coming out later in July. And that's going to be uh, called SAS Superstars. And that's got 10 people who have done wonderful things with their SAS, actual case studies, and also drawing out the real, the wisdom and learning, because life's not easy. And, uh, you know, if we can if we can sow those seeds for other people, but also give them some of that, that feedback needed to, to avoid some of the pitfalls. So it's been a, a wonderful experience. I know Louise has enjoyed it as much as I have. And, uh, yeah, that will be, um, be my fourth book, co-writing it with, uh, with Louise. It's been a, a wonderful privilege. And your fifth book, are we allowed to hear about that one yet or is it still under secret wraps? Yeah, so my, my fifth book by demand actually is about, um, we've got the working title, it's about property development and SaaS. If you think of all the, the individual strategies you can have investing in business and investing in property um, and then bringing in the power of a small self-administered pension, just bringing that together lots of case studies and detail yeah that's uh, that's a, a real piece of work that is so that will be my summer's uh, work we're just doing the front cover at the moment um so that will be uh, later on in in autumn 2020 and i think we forgot number three which was advice to a younger self wasn't it 
It was, yeah. So um, again, that passion for uh, creating that support and enablement for that for our next generation. Now, pretty pretty humble guy. I'm, I'm confident and driven, but uh, humble as well. I, I know um, where there are others that can can help me and, and help others better than I can. So I reached out to 48 other people who I uh, I know, and um, we all decided to write a chapter each. And I drew this book together. And the concept is, you know, to take yourself back to when you were 12, 14, 16, if somebody, given all your experience now, if somebody had put their arm around you and given you just one, maybe two or three pieces of advice, what do you wish they were? And again, across 48, plus myself, so 49 chapters, when you look at the twists and turns through business and life that all 49 of us have taken and the learnings, it's an incredible, powerful book. And the, the proceeds are, are all going to, to charity between uh, British Art Foundation and uh, B1G1. So they'll be, they'll be recycled, regenerated and reinvested in as a force for good, a real momentum there. So, you know, it's a great, uh, great present for, for the ones that you love and even just one or two nuggets there. And like, unlike most books, it's a book that you can just dip in and dip out takes 10, 15, 20 minutes to read a chapter. You don't have to read the chapters in order because it's alphabetical order. Um, so that was a very, very different um, book. And it also created a, a lot of opportunity for all 49 of us. I learned how to work for the first time with people as co-authors of, of the book, of, of chapters of the book. And most of those 48 people had never put pen to paper to write a book or part of a book. So they, they, they took themselves through some pretty tough times to create a, you know, each a very polished chapter. So I think everybody learned in the process and that's the kind of wheels of evolution turning for all of us. So the power of the book started in, in its creation as well as what it stands for to those that choose to read it. So what's next for Mark Stokes? Um, well, we're certainly going to take the social impact business to, to the next level. Uh, SAS Alliance, we've just released our, our new membership, which is fantastic. Um, our education business goes from strength to strength. Our property development company is starting to take on larger developments um, through what is some interesting times. You know, we've got some pretty choppy water during 2020. Business investments, I monitor my business investments, always looking for other opportunities. But the thing I love, uh, and I spend uh, quite a proportion of my time, is, is helping other people. I, I mentor people. I love that with a passion. I've done that for 25 years now, helping to draw out the, the, the very best attributes out of people and, and hopefully you know, drawing a sense of clarity for them so they've got that purpose of mind and, and of action. And last but not least, it's spending that you know, really desirable time with my family. My children are growing up rapidly now. Um, they make me prouder and prouder as the days go by. And I, I really enjoy that. So, yeah, that's, that's me. I think in time we'll, we'll travel the world as the children get older. My, my wife and I, we're coming up for our, our 22nd wedding anniversary. So, um, yeah, good times. Amazing. Well, 
I can't say thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing your journey and some of it's been traumatic and you know thank you for sharing that because I know that a lot of people hear that and that experience and will resonate with it about how for them there have been moments in their lives that have also been pivotal but it's just been such a pleasure to hear what you're up to what you've done and yeah well done on all the ultra marathons and all the business it's just it's just incredible really inspiring thank you very much amy and have you got one final message for the audience please you know, I'd leave you with a piece of advice that um, many of you know me will have heard before, but it was a piece of advice that one of my first managing directors gave me uh, way back in the 90s. And it was an advice that was uh, to lead me to doing many, many high-level corporate negotiations um, and really trying to find that common ground and create that shared value. And that's um, walk a mile in another person's shoes. Now, to me, that has been incredibly powerful in, in striking the balance and creating that shared value. And sometimes there's, there's an old uh, corporate um, game called the, the Ugly Orange, where two teams compete for the global supply of oranges. And it's, it's a corporate game um, that you might have an away day. And the moral of the story at the end of it is you both outcompete each other and the price of oranges goes through the roof. But when you do the debrief, one company wanted the pith and the other company wanted the juice and they were competing needlessly. And there will be competition in life, but quite often it isn't as overt as you think it is. Quite often when you look under the bonnet, you'll actually find that collaboration will exceed and outstrip uh, competition um, many, many times over. And we've seen that in how our businesses have grown over the years. So, you know, walk a mile in another person's shoes, understand what great looks like to them. And quite often there's some quite remarkable things that can happen. So that would be my, my final parting shot of advice. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrollinson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.